Welcome to Underhooks, where we document the stories at the intersection of organized crime and martial arts. In this introductory episode of the series, we will be introducing you to this man, former mixed martial arts fighter Amar Sulawev. Amar fought in the premier mixed martial arts organizations of his day throughout the world, and he trained with a man many consider the greatest heavyweight of all time, Fedor Emelianenko. Ultimately, following a respectable career in the ring and cage, Amar would find himself in the center of a murder-for-hire plot. So let's get into his story. Amar Sharifovich Sulawev was born on January 7, 1976, in what is now the town of Tashir, Armenia, to a Yazidi family. He would grow up in the resort city of Anapa, which is located in Russia's Krasnodar region in the North Caucasus Mountains. Anyone familiar with MMA is also familiar with the reputation that the Caucasus Mountain region holds in the sport, especially given the large number of highly skilled fighters, specifically from the North Caucasus Republic of Dagestan. Though many of the Dagestani fighters are high-level strikers who practice a Chinese martial art called Sanda, an almost superhuman mystique has been bestowed upon the Republic's wrestlers. And though perhaps Dagestan is best known for producing fighters and producing very talented fighters, children throughout the region, both in Russia and in the independent republics that form the South Caucasus, that would be Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, children just in this region every year begin practicing a combat sport for the first time. Friends that I've met from the Caucasus, or who are from just the larger Russian-speaking world but have roots in the Caucasus, they've told me this themselves. I have a friend named David. Uh, he's one of the few people I actually miss from San Francisco. There's, there's not a lot. I haven't seen David in a really long time, but that that guy's awesome. Like he's just, uh, yeah, I'll talk about him more in depth. He was there the night I got the just most wasted I've ever gotten in my life. He was right there with me. Pretty much had a negative impact on each other that night. Uh, <laughs> just we, I have, I have stories with the guy. I have stories with the guy. But he's originally from Armenia. And he's a black belt in judo. He started practicing judo when he was around eight years old. And to many, that might, like, in, especially in that region, that might actually be kind of a late start. A lot of kids start wrestling, doing judo, maybe doing boxing. They start practicing these sports sometimes at maybe five or six years old. It's not uncommon, particularly the wrestlers. And he said, you know, amongst his friends, judo, wrestling, boxing, those were the most popular sports. Even above, you know, soccer, above football, which is internationally the most popular sport. It's football is central to politics in some countries. Like football is just a phenomenon in and of itself that, you know, in America, we have something similar in our version of football, where in some places, particularly in the South, particularly amongst people that follow college sports, it's damn near like a religion. It's even more so for wrestling and combat sports, grappling in the Caucasus. And David told me, he said, that's what all of him and his friends did. They all either grappled or they boxed or some kind of combat sport. And he was able to take himself to competition level. I mean, he was competitive in judo uh, back in Armenia and in America, but he also said uh, very competitive in the streets. And 
just wasn't, it wasn't uncommon. It was very normal for there to be very large scale street fights between maybe 20 or 30 kids on each side from different neighborhoods. And this isn't particular just to the Caucasus. It's common in the Caucasus. Uh, when you hear guys like Habib, when they talk about street fighting, that's what they're talking about. And it's it's large scale violence that nobody's doing anything to stop. Nobody's going to jail. People can just go fight. And it's um, it's pretty accepted. Might not be looked uh, looked as the most honorable thing by everybody. It's not something everybody engages in. But it's not an uncommon experience to have these types of just large scale fights between kids from different neighborhoods. Such an adolescence, it probably would have been familiar to Amar. And he played sports as a kid, but he got more so into kind of what was an early forerunner of MMA called Pancration. He got into that when he was a teenager before transitioning into kickboxing. And for those of us here in America, there's a big difference in um, the former Soviet system of schooling and current contemporary Russian and former Soviet Republic system of schooling where... People go to college for sports, and you'll see people with the title of like International Master of Sport and say Sambo or boxing. They go to college to learn how to be better sportsmen. That's not something that we have here. And, you know, I've known someone that's gone to one of these sports schools. Uh, as they would say in Russian, he, he was kind of a mudak. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had... He had a good place to go because he wasn't going to be an engineer. He wasn't going to be a doctor. He wasn't going to be any of these things, but he could be a guy that was a boxer or he could be a guy that was a wrestler, a grappler. He had athletic talent, not a lot in between his ears. They had a place for him to go. Whereas here, obviously people go to college on sports scholarships and things of that nature, and they learn to be a better player in the context of playing for a college team. I mean, or so I'm guessing. It's not like my ass was doing that. I wasn't. But that's where your talent is maximized. But over there, they have a college where your primary focus is going to be on sports. And Amar Sulev would have benefited from an approach like this. And just as a young man, he found success in pancreation. He was the Russian national champion. He would also find some success later on in MMA, fighting in the World Valley Tudo Championship in Brazil. And this came, you know, these these successes came after losing his first fight. And it, it wasn't long before his success at the World Valley Tudo Championship in Brazil that he hooked up with a team called the Red Devil Fight Club. I mean, this team is notable because it had Fedor on it. Fedor and his brother Alex were the stars of this team. And, you know, during this time, the early 2000s, Alexander Emelianenko, he was known for being a really big guy, being fast, having good movement, but having very, very powerful hands and being very accurate with his punches and his strikes. But his brother during the same time period came to be regarded as one of, if not the best heavyweight MMA fighter of all time. Just training in proximity with someone that had so much talent and had such a great understanding of fighting and martial arts, this would have been very beneficial to Omar. The connections that he would have made also, having such a famous teammate and having a manager like Vadim Finkelstein, the guy that founded Red Devil Fight Club, that would benefit him a lot as well. After amassing a 13-2 record, with most of his wins coming by stoppage, Amar found himself in one of the biggest shows on earth, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, or UFC. 
His first test was against legendary fighter and soon-to-be UFC light heavyweight champion Chuck Liddell. Setting Amar against Chuck shows the opinion the company held him in, as Chuck was a top prospect and he would go on to achieve great things in the sport. Unfortunately, Amar would lose to Chuck by decision, and in his next fight in the promotion, he would lose by TKO to the New York badass Phil Baroni. With two losses in the promotion, Amar was cut from the UFC and would not make a return to the company. He would continue to compete in high-level MMA organizations such as M1 Global and especially Pride FC, but his results were mixed. Against less heralded competition, Amar would find himself victorious, but against competition of similar or greater standing, such as Dennis Kang or Apollo Filio, he would come up short. He did pick up a win against former UFC middleweight champion Murillo Bustamante, but it would be his last win of note, with Amar losing by TKO to legendary trash talker and overall pretty good fighter Chael Sonnen in his second-to-last fight. Amar would fight for the final time in 2008, winning by TKO in the M1 promotion against Polish fighter Jasik Bushko finishing his career with a record of 24 wins and 7 losses, with 20 of his wins coming by stoppage. With his fighting career behind him, Amar set his sights on his life to come and moved back to his adopted hometown of Anapa, where he began looking for business opportunities. For many fighters, the years following the end of their careers can be hard. Many of the popular fighters are used to a level of attention and income that simply stops as soon as they either stop fighting or lose so many fights that they have to stop. For the less heralded fighters, many of them never make enough money to cover more than their basic expenses while they're active, and this money is long gone by the time they retire. Many also deal with substance abuse issues, and they sometimes come out of retirement to take ill-advised fights, with the purse being their sole motivation to do so. By comparison, Amar seemed to be doing relatively well for himself, as he had come to own several cafes and even a real estate agency. However, things would take a turn in his life and charged with attempted murder in 2013. While awaiting trial on these charges, Amar would be diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer and ultimately would pass away before seeing trial in 2016. Though Amar was not the most well-known mixed martial artist in the world, and his case was on high-profile one in Russia, much less the world over. His life and his post-retirement career show the intersection of organized crime and martial arts perfectly. First, let's just discuss the case itself. So, Amar was charged with being involved in two assassination attempts. And the targets of the plots were politicians. So they were politicians, I believe, of the United Russia Party, which is Putin's party. And Amar was accused in one of them of being the getaway driver. The person that was the ringleader of this murder-for-hire ring was a politician himself, and these people that he was looking to kill were his rivals. So this is a, it's almost like a, a story for crime and politics as well. But we'll get to Russia and the current criminal political setup kind of in a second. But those are the basic details of the case. That's essentially what happened. He was involved in these things. Why he was involved in these things, he never said. He personally said that he wasn't involved in any of it. Ultimately, he would pass away 
before the trial could even happen, before anybody could testify, before anything on his end could ever be resolved, he was already gone. It's not necessarily the first time that that's happened in Russia either, where there's somebody that's perhaps very pertinent to a case or very pertinent to uh, a process not being carried out and they're in the way and that person goes away. I'm not saying that that's what happened per se here in the case of Marsulov. Given that politics is a integral part to this murder for hire scheme that he was alleged to be a part of, things like this can't be ruled out either. And just with, with Omar's involvement in organized crime in mind, the question that might come to mind for some of you guys is, is he like the first kind of sportsman like this to find himself in such a situation, namely a guy that was a fighter that's now involved in organized crime? And uh, far from it. Far from it. So before we discuss the role of the sportsmen, the guys that were practicing judo, the guys that were the Greco-Roman and freestyle wrestlers, the boxers, before we discuss their role in organized crime, because that is a very prominent role in organized crime in Eastern Europe, we have to discuss what happened in Eastern Europe around the time of the emergence of the sportsmen. Even by so some somebody even with just a basic passing familiarity with history of the last 30 or so 40 years, at the very least, they know that the country that is now Russia used to be the Soviet Union and the communist system collapsed. What was once a communist country, which what was once like our greatest enemy, I mean, you can maybe say that about now as well, but that entity used to be communist and it, it's not anymore. People might not be able to tell you necessarily what Russia is now or the internal dynamics, the political dynamics, the foreign relations of Russia. They might not be able to speak to that, but they'll tell you at least that it's not communist anymore. And that process in America of Russia becoming a capitalist country is looked at favorably on our end. Like that was us winning the Cold War. That was their system being shown to fail. That was all the <laughs> propaganda that they, you know, that we put out there. We turned out to be right, so we get to say that we called it, so on and so forth. That's an important win for us, and we look at that process as being very positive. It's not necessarily the case in Russia. I mean, there's, there's still people to this day that want the old communist system to come back. I mean, it's mostly older folks that lived and suffered under it, but then they came to suffer in a different way, and they didn't like this new kind of suffering, so they preferred the old suffering. But the best way to describe it is suddenly every single thing in the country was for sale. And previously, nothing was. You couldn't buy a business. It was Starting a business was only possible from the 80s onward. If you were engaged in any kind of business, that was a reason for you to be sent to the gulag. Yeah, operating commerce in a communist country, illegal. So essentially, everything's like that. And then suddenly... You can buy a whole mining operation. You can buy gas works. Like these things that used to belong to the state, every single thing now is for sale. And certain people benefited from that. The people that benefited the most were people that were already in power, that were the functionaries that simply were functionaries under communism, and now they were functionaries under a capitalist Russia. They stood to benefit. The people that were politically connected to them stood to benefit. And criminals stood to benefit. And Russian organized crime, some people will say that it, ex it existed going back 
as far as Tsarist times. Like, it's existed for a couple of hundred years. If, if so, then so be it. I don't know if that's exactly the case or not. I can tell you that that Russian organized crime crystallized in the Gulag prison system. And people that were part of this world, the thieves world, they pledged themselves to follow certain codes, get certain tattoos to identify themselves as holding certain standing, committing certain acts. Certain acts were to be just completely avoided entirely. That would include obviously the usual shit like snitching, but even working. Collaborating with the authorities in any way was a way to get lowered and lose your status. However, we'll discuss why those rules came to bend and then break and then a new system came to emerge, but ultimately, this class of criminal, the Vori Sukone, the criminal elite, the criminal authorities, they would come to rule the prison systems, they would come to collaborate with the system. And this political criminal mix ended up being what is now known as the Russian Mafia. The Russian Mafia had the backing of some politicians at times that were involved just in a reciprocal relationship, but they came to buy a lot of things. They came to control the importation of certain things. A lot of the produce coming from the Caucasus, that was controlled by organized crime from people from Georgia, people from Chechnya, people that were just native Russians, people coming from Kazan. All these different groups came to fight over the newly emerging resources and streams of revenue. And it's during this time that the sportsman joins the ranks of the criminal world. The wrestlers, the boxers, the judoka, the people that are versed in combat sambo, maybe the guys that served in the military. And there's a lot of reasons for wanting these guys to be on your side if you're a criminal organization. First and foremost, they're very strong, physically strong. Maybe some of them have been taking performance-enhancing drugs, but they know how to fight. They're used to fighting. They're disciplined. They're used to training. They're used to having a schedule. They're regimented. These are good people to have in a fight on your side. So these people were recruited. And they made for easy recruits because, one, training is very expensive, Paying for your coaches, paying for your sparring partners, paying for your food, paying for your supplements, paying for your place to live. Like, because you can't do anything else when you're training. That's all you're doing. You're training. If you're working a nine to five job in training, you're not fully training. So a person that is perhaps has, let's say, Olympic ambitions, because in sports like this, this is the highest that you could go, particularly at this time, there's no MMA. So if you're a Greco Roman wrestler, the best you're going to do is the Olympics. That's what you're training for. That's what you're going to do all day. Your whole life is going to be consumed by just training wrestling or training boxing, training judo, and you're doing nothing else. This is very expensive. And it's like, if you don't have those opportunities, those Olympic opportunities, maybe the best you can do is be a national champion. Maybe the best you can do is be a regional champion. There's no other opportunities for you. Like I said, there's no MMA. There's no anything else. Even once you're a gold medalist, there's nowhere else for you to go. There's no opportunities. But you know what there are? There's criminals, and they'll sponsor you. I remember reading about this arrangement one day. I think it was the book McMafia by Misha Glenn. I believe that's who wrote it, and I believe that's where I read this. And there was a guy that they were discussing in the book named Karabas Barabas. 
from the city of Odessa. This is kind of how my life is. Anytime I'm interested in something, I'm going to encounter somebody that's a part of that. I just am. Like if I'm reading about this, this person's going to pop up in my life, or they're already in my life, and we're going to talk about it. So I'm reading about Karabas Barabas, who was a mafia leader in the city of Odessa, Ukraine. And I had a coworker that was in his 40s. So he would have lived in Odessa during that time that Karabas Barabas was running the city. He was the mafia kingpin in that city. And that's a city that's very well known for essentially being a haven for criminals. Like Odessa and Rostov have those reputations for criminality with, it, at least it's like it's looked at as like the, the guys from Odessa will try to talk you out of your stuff first. They'll still take it. The guys from Rostov will just kill you and just take it off your dead body. So those are the reputations that they have. Being a crime boss in a city like Odessa, you are a very powerful person. So I asked my coworker, hey, have you ever heard of this guy? And he said, yeah, he used to sponsor me. I, I said, uh, excuse me? He said, he said, yeah, you know, I was a wrestler. He didn't like wrestling. Karabas Barabas apparently didn't like wrestling. He didn't find uh, two guys in close combat uh, very masculine. But his opinion, so be it. He's not here anymore to defend himself or evolve his opinion. But my coworker told me that he looked out for him. So my coworker was also an ex-paratrooper. So those are essentially special forces. He, I'm not going to say where, <laughs> where he served. I'm not going to say his name just because he might not want to be currently associated with a mafiosi. So I respect that. But he said that Carbos Barabas would sponsor all of the sportsmen, the boxers and the wrestlers, and just wait. He wouldn't ask anything from them. He would never ask for the money back. He would pay your rent. He would pay for your training. He would pay for your gear. He would pay for the entrance fee to the tournament you're going to go wrestling or boxing or whatever. He just knew that one day you were going to come to him and basically this is a guy that's been taking care of you his whole life. You were going to come to him and he was going to ask something of you and you were going to do it. And then perhaps from that point on, you would just do things for him. That was the expectation for my coworker. He was still active as a sportsman really before he could get too deep. At least as he's told me, his life is his life. It could have been whatever it was. Ultimately, Karabas Barabas was killed, and people had to scatter to the wind, my coworker included, because people were fighting over his criminal enterprise. It was his enterprise that was so big, there were so many pieces to fight over. And people were killing each other. A few thousand people end up dying in Odessa just fighting over his empire. And my friend has to just leave the country entirely and go to a place he's never ever even thought about going to and learning a new language and raising a kid. And he's benefited and flourished from it. But at the same time, it could have gone any number of different ways along the way. So it's also worth noting that in the country of Bulgaria, there wasn't this kind of underworld elite that already existed to sponsor the sportsmen. In Bulgaria itself, the sportsmen just became criminals. They had the same qualities as their cousins, essentially spiritual cousins in Russia, where they're tough, they're big, they're well-fed vis-a-vis everybody else. They might be on testosterone or HGH or other performance-enhancing drugs, and they know how to fight. 
So they're willing to fight and take the things that they're willing to fight and take. And you might say, okay, well, that's in Bulgaria. That's in a smaller place. But you have to understand the amount of dark commerce, black commerce, criminal commerce that goes on between them and criminal organizations in Turkey, particularly the flow of heroin up into Europe and the flow of people. Two huge businesses and Bulgarian guys who originally started out as the boxers, wrestlers, and the grapplers, they came to touch billions of dollars just by nature of having absolutely no other opportunities. But as far as how crime is structured in Russia, it is a, a lot more formalized. And I can say that at the top of the criminal pyramid is the state. The state has integrated crime just into its apparatus as almost a, another column, a hidden column of society that generates a lot of income. So starting in the late 2000s, the price of oil dropped seriously throughout the world. And we've seen just destabilization from that in certain places where oil was a primary commodity of theirs. You don't have to look any further than Venezuela for just kind of the most extreme example of post-oil, if you want to call it that. But in Russia, oil was the big moneymaker as well, and a lot of the economy was based on oil. And crime had already been integrated, but crime is important to the economy. Criminals have to kick back to the state. The biggest criminals in the state are the oligarchs. And it's the oligarchs that surround themselves around Vladimir Putin. They orbit around him like the sun. And they can't do business without his sanction. That could be cybercrime. That could just be the outright theft and diversion of materials, the outright theft and diversion of money made from those materials. It's all good as long as you kick back to the state and you, you have personal loyalty to Putin. You can still get twisted up. You get caught in a bad situation, you make the party look bad, you make him look bad, it could be your life. Or it could just be you go into internal exile in prison, or you get kicked the fuck out the country. But crime is integrated into the state. And there's a criminal concept that's very important in Russian organized crime, and that is the concept of the roof. So the roof is the person that protects you. So they protect you from all, all, the, all the shit that can come from above and all the shit that can come sideways and come not necessarily shit that can come from below. Like if you have a roof and your roof is strong, nothing's coming from below. Those people are getting squashed. Ultimately, you can't form a business without somebody protecting your business. And from the start of capitalism in Russia in the 90s, that's how it was. That's if you wanted to open a business, guess what? You're taking on a gangster or you're taking on a politician, or you're taking on a guy that's kind of a combination of both, who's essentially going to say no other political gangsters are going to come and screw with your business. And sometimes somebody else has a better roof than your roof, and you get gobbled up anyway. That's part of the game. People go to war over who's going to protect a business, over essentially who's going to extort a business and bleed it dry. There's been a lot of people killed in Russia just trying to establish themselves as the roof over something. Ultimately, the greatest roof in the country to have is a government roof, is the Putin stamp of approval. That's going to block everything out. You're going to be able to carry out whatever you want to carry out. Look at some of the people that are in power in the different republics in Russia. 
Look, look at a guy like Ramazan Kadyrov. He has Putin as his roof. There's nothing that he can't do unless it's against Putin or makes Putin look particularly awful. There's nothing he can't do. Ultimately, that invincibility in Russia is for sale. And more, I'm not even going to say more, politics and crime are integrated. So in the case of Omar Suluev, his roof is a politician. He's, he's probably able to open these businesses and do business as he sees fit because his roof is paving the way for him. He wouldn't be able to get a permit. He wouldn't be able to get, I don't know, two or three days of business operations without someone coming and torching his shit. That's how deep it is in Russia when it comes to corruption and it comes to the interplay of organized crime in the state. This advanced state of organized crime in Russia, where it is integrated into the state, that's mirrored the situation in a couple of other countries as well, namely in Colombia, during the time of Pablo Escobar onward, and Mexico, currently. Organized crime has become a political actor in these countries. However, in each of these countries, in both Colombia and in Mexico, this political actor that's organized crime has gotten to be just so powerful that it's been able to challenge the state for state power, for for the monopoly on violence, for the very tenets of statehood that a state needs to control to be considered a state. Organized crime has fought the state when it has gotten too powerful. I think it's safe to say that with organized crime being as powerful as it is in Russia, such a confrontation is likely. And with sports being an outlet for the poor to advance, this kind of exploitation and farming of sportsmen and sportswomen, it will continue, and more stories like Amar Sulawev's will continue to emerge.